again. It's good to, good to be back with you on a Sunday morning. Um, if you're here as a, a first-time visitor, you're jumping in with us at a great time. We're actually beginning a new sermon series today. Um, hopefully you received a bulletin on your way in the door, and hopefully that bulletin design didn't scare you back out the door. Um, against my wife's better judgment, she thought this was scary. I thought it was cool. Um, I don't know, difference of opinion and you know, wisdom may prove that she's right. But nonetheless, we're going we're gonna to be looking over the next seven weeks at what has popularly, maybe, maybe popularly, been called the seven deadly sins. Uh, seven deadly sins being pride, greed, anger, sloth, also known as laziness, envy, gluttony, and lust. So if that didn't scare you yet, um, I, 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 nothing's going to scare you. Um, listen, this is not a, a list of sins that are um, elevated in some way which we can't be redeemed from. In fact, the, the subtext of the series is not just the seven deadly sins, but it's also how Jesus rescues us from them. And so, you know, this this pattern, this, this list has been, it was crafted kind of in the early church. Some of the, the desert monk type church fathers use this list kind of as a, as a framework, really, for the Christian to expose their sinfulness and then flee to the Savior. And, and so that's, that's really my hope um, with this um, series. Uh, there's, a, there's a joke that's floated around from time to time. I heard it told this week, and the joke, it's a, it's a Scottish woman who goes to church on a Sunday morning, and her husband does not go to church with her. She, upon returning home from church, the husband asks, well, what was, what was the sermon about? And the woman says the sermon was about sin. He said, well, what did he have to say about sin? And the wife says he was against it. <laughs> it's just really, really simple. Uh, I, think, I think there are words in our culture that have some, some heavy weight, um, almost a dangerous weight to them and a dreadful weight to them. You know, words like cancer or words like Nazi or, or words like rape or just these heavy, dense type of words that really, we don't really like to use them a lot. Um, sin is kind of one of those words. And sin really has, has lost a bit of its prophetic edge, kind of where we're at today. There's, there's a bit of two dynamics at play when, when you hear the word sin. You, you know, sin in, in, to the modern ear, a lot of times, particularly to the younger generations, is like being naughty, kind of like breaking rules. You know, it's like, oh, I know it's wrong, but it's so nice. Like, like just kind of just this casual view of rule breaking. That's, that's kind of one vein of sin. And then the other goes in a hard, hard left to the other direction. And this is, this is that, that religious, finger-wagging, judgment-casting, picket-sign-holding type of sin. And so I, I think we, we, we hear the word sin, and we, we've kind of navigated in those directions. And so a lot of times, what's happened is we've lost its weight and significance in our own lives. And so I'm hoping... Maybe it's a bit ambitious, but I'm hoping to recover what the Bible has to say about sin. You see, the Bible teaches us that sin is a self-destructing pattern of life that will ruin your relationships, it will ruin your own heart, it will ruin love, peace, security, all of these things. It ruins it, but above all, it ruins the relationship that you ought to be having with your maker. And so we're going to look um, over a, a number of weeks at these sins, and I want to not only highlight them. Listen, this sermon series is going to hurt your pastor, 
okay? So like I spend all week thinking about this, and then I come and I kind of regurgitate it for you on Sundays. And so we're going to come in, I'm going to come in here wounded a little bit, but the, the, the goal is not for us to, to leave here, you know, punched to the stomach, you know, air knocked out of us, what just happened. The goal is for not only for us to see our sin for what it is, but to look to the healing ball of the good, balm of the good news of Jesus. And so that, that's the hope. Um, this quote from C.S. Lewis, it's, it's floated around for many years. I want to, before we read the text, I want to read this to you. Talking about people, he says this. He says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. That's who we are. We make mud pies in the slum when God offers us vacation at the beach. And so this is our attempt to run to the sea, to see the good and lasting and abundant life that Jesus would have for us. So this morning, we're going to look at a couple passages. So we're, this, is, this approach is going to, we're going to look at a variety of passages over the next seven weeks. Today, I'm going to begin by reading Genesis chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, you can flip open to Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, that's all right. We'll have the words projected for you. We do love to give away Bibles. Uh, there are some free Bibles on the next steps table as you make your way out today. That's from the, the version that I read and preach from, which is the English Standard Version. So we'd love to make that available to you. I'm going to begin by reading Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, and then I'm going to flip over to the New Testament. And if you're a quick flipper, if you want to kind of tab that page, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 5 for the second portion of the text. So let's read Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now going to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, picking up in the middle of verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let's pray and ask God to bless the preaching of his word. Father, it's with a bit of trepidation and fear that we, we come to this series and this text.
text. Lord, this may sting our hearts in some ways, and, and I pray that it does. I pray that you would awaken us to our sin and that you would show us your son. We pray these things in his name. Amen. In 2006, there was a survey conducted of college students. The survey was called the Narcissistic Personality Inventory. Now, the college students taking this exam, as it were, it's kind of a survey, uh, did not know that was the name of it. And this inventory has been given to college students for many, many decades. And uh, it, it asked essentially questions, you know, you're, you're kind of affirming or denying statements like this. I'm an extraordinary person. I am more capable than other people. Everybody likes to hear my stories. And finally, if I ruled the world, it would be a better place. Now, these questions have been posed to college students for, again, a variety of decades. And, and the shocking increase of those answers being in the affirmative yes has been really astounding. In the, in the 1950s, only 12% of college students would have affirmed those type of questions. So some of you may have been in some of you may have taken this exam. I'm just maybe. Later in the 80s, it, so 30 years later, three decades later, that number staggeringly jumped from 12% up to 80%. This is in the 80s. And so fast forward to 2006, and, and really where we're at, 2017, the the age and the demographic of the selfie, and those numbers are really off the charts. They're, they're up in the upper 90s. They have, I didn't get the most current stats, but, but you get where this is headed. We live in an extremely narcissistic, self-oriented type of culture. We're told to have pride and to cherish ourselves and to promote yourself and express yourself and market yourself to everybody and all the time. It's really, it's really the, the air that we breathe. It's, it's the water that we're drinking constantly. And so for us, self-esteem is really not the problem, right? We are, we are not a culture that, that, that struggles with self-esteem. However, pride ultimately is more than self-esteem. Pride is an attempt to replace God and his supremacy. See, pride is an assault on the authority of God. And so today, we're going to look at this particular sin, pride. And, and all, all the books I'm reading and commentators and, and kind of everybody that's, that's really written and thought about this subject acknowledge this is really the banner sin over all the other ones. Like, in, in many, many, many ways, you can connect every thought, word, and deed that is inappropriate to this sin because it's an assault on God and because it was, in essence, the original sin. One of the great Puritans, I don't know if you frequent the Puritan writings, but I enjoy one of them in particular. His name is John Owen, and John Owen wrote this great book, one of his many volumes. Before they had giraffe internet, they wrote books. So he had a 17-volume set of just, just thorough Christian thought and theology. And one of his volumes is called The Mortification of Sin. It's not really language that flows off our tongue every day. Some of you it does, that's weird, but... Mortification. Mortification means to put to death. And so he's writing in this volume about the, the priority of the Christian to put sin to death in their life. And, and he famously had this statement where he said 
that the Christian ought to be killing sin or it will be killing you. And so today, as we look at this passage, we're going to see that pride is the great enemy of your life, but humility is your greatest friend. So those are the kind of the two arenas, that's why I picked the two passages, is to really assess what pride looks like and then to run to the cure for it, which is humility. So let's look at the lure of pride and then we'll look at the cure of humility. So let's begin by just really, I just really want to make some observations, I guess you could say, about this passage. Um, if you've read the Bible or if you've attempted to start the Bible, you've probably made it to this story in chapter 3. Um, it's not very far into the book. Um, setting is God's made everything in the world. Uh, all of the heavens above, the earth below, the animals, the creeping, crawling things, sea, stars, everything's in place. He's created his, the climax of his creation, man and woman, and he's placed them in the Garden of Eden. He's given them one rule. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This one's off limits. That's what he says. He gave the rule to the man. The man then was to give the rule to the woman. And they were to enjoy life with each other and life with God. It's the essence of where we're at in the book. And so we see at the beginning of chapter 3 the entrance of the crafty serpent. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here other than to say this, that this, we believe, is a literal story. So this isn't mythology. Um, you know, the, the whole talking snake business is, is strange. I, I don't deny that. Um, but we have no reason to believe that this was not a historical account. And so here we see the entrance of really the father of pride, identified as the crafty serpent, whom we would know as Satan. And so here he comes into God's garden. We've got some background information on him. Essentially, he rebelled against God's authority, bringing a host of stars, a host of angels with him to the earth. And so just a couple off-the-cuff comments. One, Satan is created by God, so he's under his authority. And two, he comes in to really tempt humanity with that original sin of pride. And so the, the narrative continues, and the immediate thing that is put into question is God's authority. The serpent says, did God really say that? Right? He, he begins to put these seeds of doubt into the, the, the woman who's there, and we see later in the text that the man is also there, which is problematic. But the woman says, oh, yeah, God told us this. He told us that we can't eat of this tree. And did you catch what else she added? She said, neither shall you touch it in verse 3. Well, that's actually not what God said. God didn't say you couldn't touch it. He said you couldn't eat it. And so immediately we see the subversive undermining of God's authority and of God's word, really. And so pride becomes really thought-provoking when God's authority is questioned and doubted. That's what's going on here. And so the lure for the crafty serpent to the, to the people is the lure of appeal to become like God. It's the allure of pride. It's the allure of power. It's the allure of authority. All of these things come into play, and the people fall for it. It becomes appealing to them. And so what happens? Well, the result is their eyes are then opened, as the text tells us. 
They're aware of their vulnerability. No clothes at that point. I know. I don't know what that's about. We don't understand that. But there's this complete openness and transparency that before was acceptable and now is shameful. The result is the man and the woman must find a loincloth, probably some fig trees, some some plants to cover themselves. And then immediately they do what? They run and they hide. They hide in their shame, in their guilt, thus uh, resulting in the production of pride. So this narrative, this historical narrative at the very beginning of the Bible shows us what an assault against the supremacy of God looks like in the form of pride. So you're hearing me talk about a slithering, talking snake, a forbidden tree, and naked people, and there's a great disconnect. Like, how is that me? Let me, let me attempt to get at how this is us. Um, diagnosing, let me, let me put it this way, kind of for a point of application. Diagnosing the sin of pride starts with hearts. Um, as we work through this series, um, all, all sin is really a heart problem, but pride particularly manifests itself in that hidden, dark, rebellious soil of our hearts, right? So, so many other sins, as they were, can be visible, and manifest it external, and people can see them and call you out on them, but pride is really that one that you can hide if you want to. So I'm going to try to bring that out of the garden today, the garden of our heart. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to look at some questions. I'm going to, I'm going to really ask a diagnostic question. I'm going to flesh that out a little bit, and I'm going to give you a tool. So I really want to make this practical I want to connect the garden account to your life. But let's talk about what pride looks like. So the first thing that we saw the people do was doubt God's authority. So a question you ought to be asking yourself is, how do I doubt God's authority? Do I add more to God's word than he has told us? You know, you know what this looks like, what pride like this looks like? It looks like arrogant Self-righteous, religious people. That's what that looks like. It looks like the orientation of law-abiding is primary. It looks like external forms of obedience is really what matters. And so carving out Sunday morning, preaching to the choir here, but this, you know, this perfect Sunday attendance, which I love, but it becomes this external thing, or putting these tangibles on other people on what spirituality really looks like when God hasn't told us that's what it looks like. And so it becomes this chest-puffing, arrogant, breeding type of person. It produces self-willing kind of people. So the tool to tell if you're this kind of person is to observe your posture towards non-religious people. What is your disposition towards unbelievers? Is it one of arrogance, better than thou, holier than thou? Is it one that you've got it all figured out and if, oh, oh, they would just, if they would just understand. It's this disposition towards unbelief that, that really shows itself as prideful. Your value system is superior to anything they have to offer. That's what pride looks like. Maybe that's not you. 
Well, what's another thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden? Well, they wanted to become like God. They wanted more significance, worth, value. So we could ask a question like this. Well, how do I think that I'm more significant, a.k.a. like God, than I really am? And so we, the lure of, of this particular strand of pride is the lure of success. You know, it's the story of the self-made person. You know, look what I've done. Look where I came from and look where I am now. You know, it begins to show itself as um, you look at others and you look at the status that you've obtained, the power that you've earned, the authority that's been entrusted to you. And you know what oftentimes this, this pride comes out like? Scorched earth on other people. Right? You're hot because other people aren't falling in line with you. You're angry, and you mistreat people, and you have no awareness of that. It's me. Here's where I'm going, and if you're not on board with me, you better move out of the way. It's, it's, the, it's the lie of the American dream, right? We're supposed to work ourselves from rags to riches and at all cost. It's what pride looks like. It's exalting ourselves to more than what God has really told us. You see, the self-made person is the self-sufficient person. I will do this. Here's the tool to diagnose if this is you. Here's a great way to gauge if this is your tendency, the temperature of your prayer life. Think, Think about what prayer is. Prayer is a humble dependence on a God who can do anything. And when we don't pray by default, what we are saying is, I can do it. It's the root of the sin. The prayerless life is the root of pride. Essentially saying, God, I will take care of this. But, you know when you do pray? When things are really out of control. When sickness occurs, when death surrounds you, when things can't be controlled by you, then you will go to God in prayer. But when everything else is falling in line, I got this, God. Maybe that's not you. What else did the people do in the garden? Well, the last thing they did was they hid. They hid from God. And so a question you ought to be asking yourself is, do I hide? Do I hide from God? Do I hide from other people? See, pride leads to a knowledge of self that ultimately exposes you. That was the consequence of this particular event, was that the people were exposed. They were made known to be finite people. And so they hid, because vulnerability is extremely uncomfortable. To be known, and then with the potential of being rejected, is dangerous to prideful people. So what do we hide in? We hide in our hobbies. We certainly hide in our work. This culture of busyness. We hide even in our families, right? Like, we will, we will be with our tribe because it's safe. They know us and they love us, but, but it's comfortable there. And it's noble to be with your family. And so it's, it really, it's really not a disguise. You know, he's, he's a family man. But you hide. Or maybe, maybe another way that this comes out is kind of in the passive way is that you become overly sensitive. 
because of the possibility of being exposed for who you really are. And so you know who you are, and so you hide. You're unwilling to lead. You're unwilling to be out and vulnerable with people because you don't want to be exposed. This is people that maybe lack self-confidence. They're paralyzed by the fear of being found out. So they hide. They hide from God and they hide from people. You want to know the, the diagnostic tool for this one? If this is you, assess your community. You know, look at the, the strength of the people around you. So we, we kind of work our, our way out in concentric circles. You know, we, we, we have that immediate circle, which is the safe circle, family. Nothing wrong with family. Family guy, I've got a family. Nothing wrong with that. But as we broaden out, how strong is everything else around you? And as it weakens, the, the broader it gets, the more pride rears its ugly head. Because here's why you won't go further. It's because you're proud. You think they have nothing to offer you, and really you don't care if you have anything to offer them. So it's pride. See, the lure of pride is that it, it really revolves all things around self. It's, this, it's a crazy cycle of self, self, self. So how do we get out of it? What's the better way that Jesus shows us? Well, the better way and the cure is found in humility. So let's go over to 1 Peter and talk about humility. Lost my spot there. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that I love, uh, we've got two young boys right now, that I love when my boys do, and they do this on occasion, is when they find daddy's clothes and they put them on. Um, they'll, you know, I'll, I'll say, hey guys, let's get dressed, get ready, we're going out, I'm going to go run some errands, we do this a lot on my day off, and let's go, let's go out. And they'll find my clothes in my room and they'll put them on and they come out and they're, you know, real big clothes, my shorts or shirts, and they're just being swallowed in, in my clothing, and they just think it's hilarious. And they say, all right, Dad, we're ready to go. We're dressed. And it's, it, you, get, you get the picture. But I, I love it because it, it's really a picture kind of of what the Bible tells us about being clothed. So, so anytime the Bible gives us a, a command, at, particularly out of the New Testament, like verse 5 of 1 Peter chapter 5, to, to clothe yourselves and to humble yourselves, the command is actually coming out of something that's already true of you. So, in other words, the command to be humble is already true of you if you belong to Jesus. So, what we believe about what Jesus has done for us is that through his work and his life and in his death and his resurrection, he has provided a clothing that you and I could not earn. So he's provided this covering so that we don't have to hide anymore. But as Christians, the command is for us to grow up into that reality. So for my boys, using the analogy, it's for my boys to grow up into those clothing, into the clothing they put on. That, that's what uh, Peter's telling us here, is to grow up into who you already are, namely to become humble people. So there, there are many wrong ways to humility. Uh, one of the wrong ways is, is kind of this, this self-effacing, kind of chastising, punishing way. You remember Eeyore? Some of us older. Eeyore, kind of the 
woe is me, like, I'm a sinner, what am I going to, you know, that's not the way to humility. That, in fact, that's a false humility that many, many Christians wear. Do you want to know, <laughs> I love this, I don't remember, who, I, I stole this from another preacher, but I can't give him credit because I don't remember who it was, but do you want to know if you're really humble or not? Here's a good way to tell if humility is something that's in you. Go out this week and do something incredibly kind, generous, and humble. I don't know what it is. It's not spring, but you know, mow your whole block's na- grass during night so nobody sees it. Or you know, go give away a large sum of money anonymously. But here's the key. Try to tell nobody about it. Tell, tell nobody about it. It's really hard to do. Like you, I mean, you at least have to tell your wife, right? Where were you all last night? I was mowing everybody's lawn. I was down the street. I, I mowed the whole block. Don't tell anybody. You know, I mean, really, in our hearts, that, that's our inclination, is to run to being seen. Well, humility is the exact opposite. It's to be unseen. So how do we cultivate humility in our lives? Well, the text here, there's a, there's a number of practical routes I could go, but I'm just going to look at the text because we're looking at this text this morning. So Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Then he quotes the Old Testament. He says, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So here's the command. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he might exalt you. To humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. C.S. Lewis said this. He, He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. See, that is the key to humility. And coming under the mighty hand of God is us seeing ourselves rightly as the creator sees us. Do you know how God made you, what he used to make people in the garden? Dirt. He took dirt off the ground and he breathed life into it. So in in many ways, some of you may may become maybe from a Catholic tradition or kind of a high church tradition where you participate in Ash Wednesday. So Ash Wednesday, if you see people with the smudges of ash on their forehead, when you receive those ashes, it's, you know, dust to, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, from, from the earth we came, from the earth will return. It's this idea of humility. And so really, that's the picture of what coming under the mighty hand of God looks like. But here's the deal. That will crush you. That mighty hand will crush you because you will never be humble enough. But do you know who else went under the mighty hand of God for you? Jesus. Do you know what the scriptures teach us? That that Jesus isn't just an example of humility, though he is that. He certainly shows us patterns of humility, caring for the least and the last of these. I mean, he certainly gives us that pattern. But he wasn't just an example. He bore the crushing weight of the mighty hand of God in your place. So if you ever want to know what God thinks of your pride, you need to look no further than the cross. As we behold Jesus and what was done for his people on the cross, we behold God crushing pride. See, the Bible tells us that God made Jesus who knew no sin. He was the utterly most humble human being who ever walked the face of this earth. 
There was no spearheading of his arrogance that ever popped up. But the Bible in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So if you want to know what God thinks of pride, you need to look no further than the cross. Matthew chapter 10 verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was mocked, ridiculed, publicly humiliated, physically tortured, spit on his face, crushed by Roman pagans on a cross for arrogant people like you and like me. And do you know where the hardest place for us to be arrogant is? Near that cross. Christians, we ought to be so close to that cross that when our arrogance comes up, when we doubt God's authority, when we undermine his ability, when we hide from other people and from God, we run to the cross. Because the cross is the hardest place to be an arrogant person. The only way for you to be liberated to live the life of true humility is through the selfless work of Jesus on the cross. It's the only way. It's the only way you will work your way out of the, the, the ripple effects of religion that have just consumed you. You love being right. You love adding additions to the word. You love binding people because ultimately it makes you feel better. The only way that you will be freed from scorching other people's face off, really, with your heated breath because of your anger, because of your arrogance, is through the work of the cross. The only way for you to be freed to live in community where you can be known, you can be exposed, you can be transparent, is for you to see your need for the work of the cross. What do you think God was like after the sin of pride happened in Genesis 3? Is he, and not just there, but in your life, when your puffness of arrogance prides out, and it's out and about for everybody to see, what do you think God's thinking? Is he like this old, cranky, bearded man in a maybe a sports coat or a suit or a, a judge's, and he's up there kind of looking to drop the hammer on you? Because if, if that's the God that you're envisioning, he would have said things like this. What have you done? Or who do you think you are? Or I'm going to show you. But how did God respond in the garden? He said, where are you? God's first response to our act of arrogance was a response of pursuit. Where are you? Well, God's all-knowing. He's all present. He knew where they were. He wasn't looking for information. He wasn't, they weren't playing hide-and-seek from God. See, it was an introduction to the rest of the Bible story that God would pursue rebellious, arrogant, prideful people and that he would put his own son under the crushing weight of his mighty hand so we would never have to feel that weight. That's where humility's found. Knowing that a God like that would do a thing like that for people like us. So Christian, 
Do you want to put pride to death? Then run to that God and stop hiding. Let's pray and ask that God would do that for us today. Father, Lord, it is hard to look at the mirror of your word and not to see the heinousness and ugliness of our sin. Lord, it's really easy to hear sermons and think, oh, I wish, wish that person was here to hear this. Lord, would you, would you take that spirit from us? That's arrogance. <laughs> it's arrogant. Lord, would you pierce our, our hearts individually and collectively as the church? And that as you pierce them, would you show us the healing cure of humility found in your son Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. And he laid down his life even to the point of obedience, even to the point of obedience of death on a cross. Lord, help us to look to Jesus today and work humility into our hearts. We pray these things in in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.